Thank you, worship team and James Mitchell. Let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Kings chapter 2. Yeah, 1 Kings chapter 2. And uh, if you need to check the table of contents, feel free to do so. It's the 11th book in your Old Testament. So if you find yourself in Isaiah or Jeremiah, you've got to go back a little bit. If you're in uh, Joshua or Judges, go forward a little bit. Uh, let me start with a story. There was a an old woman who was very rich and um, very vain and very not pretty. Can I say it that way? I'm not going to use the U word there. And anyway... Uh, she was getting up in age, and she wanted to get a, uh, a photo album of exquisite pictures of herself doing her thing. And so she did some research, and she found out one of the best photographers in the world to do that kind of thing lived in Great Britain. And so she contacted this person, and, and he flew over, and he spent a whole week. And she lived in New York City and just was a billionaire. So he just followed her around. He took pictures of her at work, at home, on her yacht in her airplane, at social functions, speaking to groups of people, doing her thing uh, at her office with committees and groups of people. And she just he, he took lots of pictures, and over the course of a week he got plenty. And so he went back home to England, took care of some other business, and came back several weeks later with this finished uh, bound photo album with 500 pictures of this lady. And so he met her at her mansion and she escorted him to her fancy office at home, and they sat down. And she opened this uh, this picture book, and without saying a word, she looked at, there were like 500 pictures. She looked at every page, every picture, didn't say a word. And when she finished uh, looking at all the pictures, she looked at the guy and said, uh, Sir, these pictures do not do me justice. And the photographer said, uh, Lady, you don't want justice. You need mercy. And the point is, justice isn't pretty. And to be understood, it must be seen in its context. Today is 15 years after the 9-11 attacks. And uh, there's the front page of the New York Times the next day. Sometimes we forget uh, it wasn't just the Twin Towers that were attacked. It was the Pentagon and also another target. And what actually happened was two airplanes took off from uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and those were the two that circled around and hit the Twin Towers in New York City. And then uh, a plane, Flight uh, 93, took off from New York City going west and just uh, over the Pennsylvania-Ohio line circled back around, and that plane was headed for Washington, D.C., and intelligence uh, experts aren't sure whether the target was the White House, can you imagine, or the Capitol building. But either way, it would have been horrific. And then the uh, the plane that hit the Pentagon took off from um, one of the airports in Washington, D.C., went west and circled around. And, uh, you know, the pictures are, are chilling. Um, as I Googled this, I saw a lot of pictures of people jumping out of the towers to avoid the, the heat, and it's just too, too horrific for me to show you. But if you see that, 
If you ever lose uh, the desire to understand 9-11 and what justice should be doing about that, look at some of those pictures and, and have a box of Kleenex handy. But those are the two towers of flame. Uh, there's some of the rubble on the ground out just near ground zero. Here are some first responders bravely taking a man there who's been gravely injured. I love that picture, don't you? Kind of reminds you of some of the uh, Oklahoma City bombing pictures of uh, the famous one, the iconic one with the fireman, the little girl. Here he's either exhausted or praying or both. And then we go to the Pentagon. I just happened to catch a documentary on the Pentagon attack this past week on the History Channel, and it it was much worse than I thought it was, uh, uh, the, the fire and the things they had to deal with that day. And there, there's uh, that evening as you're looking at the rubble. And there's uh, what's left of the plane that uh, was going to go and hit the White House or the Capitol. But thanks to cell phones, some of the, the passengers in the back were getting messages about the Twin Towers being hit. And they connected the dots. And they rushed the cockpit with no weapons. The only people with weapons on that plane were the bad people. And they managed to wrestle, we don't know exactly what happened, but they wrestled apparently control of the plane, and it crashed just out of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. There's a monument there to this that beautiful monument. So, you know, it's our, uh, it's our tradition uh, since 9-11. In the aftermath of 9-11, a lot of churches were praying for the military, and, and I was happy to do that. And there's our collage of people we know. But, uh, you know, I've told this story several times, but uh, we did that. Prayed for the military two or three weeks or four weeks after 9-11, and then I just stopped, you know. And Bob Shallot, World War II hero, kind of confronted me with that. He kind of said, you know, why have we been praying for the military? Well, because of this, that, and the other. Has that changed? I said, no, sir, we'll continue to pray for the military, and we have ever since. And and then it, it, it dawned on me long before the police became active targets that uh, we're going to pray for the military, we ought to pray for our firefighters and our peace officers, and so we, we do that. We do that kind of in a special way today on this uh, anniversary of 9-11. Let's go ahead and pray together. <clears throat> Father, please give us a, a righteous, pure sense of, of justice as a reflection of your justice and your righteousness. Um, and help us to, to realize that in a fallen world uh, where there are real threats and true evil al- aligned against the good and the innocent, that it's important for us to have a moral compass that doesn't waver. And I pray that uh, that might be resident in our hearts and our souls as we abide in our Lord Jesus Christ and we feed on your word, especially today. as we uh, On this anniversary, as we look at this particular passage, Father, we do pray for your hand of protection, direction, and blessing on those who serve uh, in the United States military and also their families and on those who protect and serve us locally, uh, especially our peace officers and firefighters. We pray for those men and women, especially those who are believers, that you'd strengthen them in their faith, keep their testimony consistent, and use them in especially strategic ways. Uh, we pray these things in uh, your name. We also pray, Father, for teachability. Uh, there are some ugly things in this passage, but in context, they're 
legitimate, not just legitimate, they're necessary. They're acts of justice and help us not to relish uh, violence, but help us to realize that uh, your justice isn't pretty. And we have to put it in context. I thank you for each one who's here. Motivate us to not just receive this as ancient history, but as transforming truth. And I pray you do surgery on our minds and our souls this morning as we feed on your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know, Solomon, we're looking at the life of Solomon. And Solomon wrote uh, three Old Testament books. He wrote most of the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And so with that in mind, one of the things Solomon wrote in Proverbs, a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drives the bones, just to kind of flip the switch on the uh, the genre around here. I've got, uh, uh, just to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, I've got snappy comebacks. I'm not going to say stupid or ugly today. So I'm not going to say snappy comebacks to stupid questions. I'm going to say snappy comebacks to less than wise questions. Question one, did you catch that fish? No, he just decided to give himself up. No, I was minding my own business when the crazy thing jumped into my boat. These aren't laugh out loud funny or anything like that. They're uh, just trying to make you think. Like, why can't I think of... Things like this to say when people ask obnoxious questions. Here's my favorite one. Did you catch that fish? No, it's a plastic model to get people like you to start fascinating conversations like this. We're going to do three of these. Here's number two. Just thought I'd warn you. Did I do something wrong, officer? No, today I'm giving tickets to drivers for obeying the speed limit. No, I'm tired of carrying this heavy ticket book, so I'm trying to thin it out. And finally, I know I'm giving a ticket to this crazy street because it's going the wrong way. <laughs> and then finally, uh, restaurant greeter to husband and wife. Table for how many? I was, when, I, when I do a wedding, and I, I always make sure we got the ring somewhere, you know, I always look at the room. Do you have a ring? Like, do I really need to ask you if you have a ring? Get the ring out. You know, that's what I'm thinking. But restaurant greeter to uh, two people. How many? You know, table for how many? 112. We like to change seats every 30 seconds. <laughs> Just one. When we eat at fancy restaurants, my wife likes to sit on my shoulders. <laughs> and then, um, I don't know. I can't count that high either. Yeah, um, yeah. we're looking at the life of Solomon, and because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the believer might be mature, first in all kinds of good works, uh, each one of these narratives we're looking at is profitable on its face, right? Eric, you know that. But the real big reason... Uh, in salvation history, we're looking at Solomon closely, is because Solomon is like the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, the physicality of Jesus, and uh, the Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy that looks like that, that emphasizes that. So we've got Solomon circled there. Now, last week in chapter one, we were kind of looking at the beginning of the beginning of Solomon's reign, and today in chapter two, we're going to look at the beginning. Uh, the end of the beginning of Solomon's reign. So chapter 1 is the beginning of the beginning. 
And we saw one of Solomon's brothers, Adonijah, who was the oldest surviving son of David, exalting himself and attempting to kind of jump Solomon's claim and to claim the throne for himself as David's dying and presumably unable to do anything about it. But Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba urged Solomon on his deathbed, and Solomon is formally anointed as king uh, before Adonijah can get the traction he desires. And so at the end of chapter 1, we saw Adonijah, the pretender to the throne, pretending to say, I'm sorry, Solomon, I didn't mean it, I wasn't going to try to do anything nasty like kill you and your mother-in-law, all your allies, and take over the throne. It didn't really happen, I didn't really mean it, please forgive me. And if you go back to verse um, 52 of chapter 1, Solomon said about Adonijah, when he finds out uh, about some of the stuff that's going on, uh, if he will be a worthy man now. He's wanting asylum. He's wanting clemency. If he'll be a worthy man and stop trying to be treasonous and try to overthrow the government, uh, not one of his hairs will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, if he goes back to trying to take over the, the throne, he will die. Capital punishment, meaning. Because it is a capital offense to foment rebellion and treason. Uh, so King Solomon sent, and they brought him, that is Adonijah, who'd been trying to jump Solomon's claim down from the altar, and he came and prostrated, got it right that time, himself before King Solomon, saluted the five-star general, as it were, and Solomon said to him, go to your house, go back and, you know, all things is normal, just kind of do your thing, but uh, just so we understand that uh, you're going to accept the status quo now, because this is what God wants for our nation. So now we're in chapter 2. On the heels of that, we've got to kind of keep that in mind. And as I say, we're looking at the end uh, of the beginning of Solomon's reign. But first we're going to see the end of the end of David's reign. We're going to see him pass some final words he gives his son Solomon. And then we're going to see the end of the beginning of uh, his reign. Uh, first, he's going to challenge Solomon. David will on his deathbed, both spiritually and professionally. And then we're going to see some details that Solomon has to deal with. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Kings chapter 2. If I can find it. Goodness. Here we go. As David, King David's time to die, drew near. He's on his deathbed. He charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Now, the death rate's 100%. And one of the songs we sang about mentioned that or referred to that. And if even David, the guy who killed a lion with his bare hands, uh, killed so many of the enemies of God, sometimes went overboard on some of that, uh, the reality is uh, it's appointed unto man wants to die. And after that, the judgment. So I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man in the fullest sense. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. The law of Moses, Anthony, was not just some stuff Moses wrote. It was a structure for the Old Testament nation we know as Israel. It was the only theocratic nation in history that was centered on the true God and whose primary mission was to represent the true God in the world until the Messiah Jesus shows up. So this is big stuff, and we're going to show you how this works in a minute. 
but the law of Moses was basically the constitution, designed to be the constitution for Old Testament Israel. And Israel was promised to the extent they as a nation followed the constitution, the law of Moses, they would succeed, and so David's reminding him, if you do that, you as a nation at a national level will succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, such that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, David's talking about himself, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That's going to be shortcut by the Babylonians down the road because of rejection of the uh, plain teachings of Scripture. But that's the plan, and that's where David leaves Solomon. He's encouraging Solomon as the king of the theocratic nation, Old Testament Israel, to embrace the Constitution, which was, in fact, the the Old Testament law. Now, if you look at this schematic, here's the timeline. Of course, Bryce, we're out here. We're out here in 2012, but... We're, we're over here with David dying. He dies in like uh, 970 B.C. So this is roughly 970 B.C. The Old Testament law has three aspects, Anthony. It had ceremonial laws about how to function in the temple, tabernacle, sacrifice, animals, things like that. Uh, New Testament churches have all kinds of different emphases and different ideas about a lot of things, but none of us sacrifice animals. How come? Because the ceremonial laws, especially in regard to sacrificing animals, were anticipating something. What were they anticipating? Yeah, they were anticipating the sacrifice of Christ. And on this side of the cross, we don't have to sacrifice animals. Uh, there were moral laws. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Those things didn't become bad when Moses came down from Sinai. They were always a reflection of God's character, even as they are now. So even though we're not under the Old Testament law, as Romans says, Christ is the end of the law for New Testament Christians, the moral laws that were included in the larger Mosaic Constitution apply because they're gnomic, they're timeless. Then you had civil criminal laws, and that's important in this passage, because watch this. We're going to see three people executed in this passage. And you know what? Uh, I'm all about law and order. And, you know, I'm slighting to the right of Attila the Hun in theory, but I've been on two juries, and once I was the foreman on a jury that sent a guy to prison for 25 years, and that was a hard decision to make, knowing I had to go in there and look at the guy, you know. If I'd read about it in the paper, I'd say, hey, they should have given him 50, you know. So uh, I'm all about law and order and uh, all that, but it's still a horrific thing to think about three people are going to be killed in this chapter. They're going to be executed, but they're going to be executed as a function of the criminal law, uh, as stated clearly in the Law of Moses, the Constitution, they were clearly capital felons, and King David slash King Solomon have every right to apply that uh, structure to individuals and have them executed. That, that was their right to do. It's not pretty, but justice isn't pretty. It's got to be understood in its context, right? Now, look at this. If you want... The Old Testament law and what it said to Israel in in a nutshell, but it's not like a little nutshell. It's like a pretty big nutshell, you know. You can go to Deuteronomy 28, and let's read just a little bit of that. Deuteronomy 28 is at the end of the life of Moses. He's summarizing the entire Old Testament law for the second generation, not the Exodus generation he led for 40 years, but the children of that generation 
the ones that would conquer the promised land under Joshua. And so these are like uh, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It's not anything different. It's just being given to the second generation by Moses. And in Deuteronomy 28, long chapter, we read what's going to happen to this nation if they obey the Constitution, the law of Moses, and what will happen to them if they don't obey it, which is what David's saying to Solomon here, right? Look at verses 1 through 9. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey as a nation, Old Testament Israel, the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. The closest they get to that is during Solomon's reign, by the way. But they don't get there because of their lack of obedience. All these blessings shall come upon you as a nation overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Those who live in the big city like Jerusalem be blessed. Blessed are those who live in the country. People who live in Bray or whatever, you know. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, the produce of the ground, the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd, the and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed will be shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you. You'll still have some enemies, but you'll be able to defeat them before you. They shall come out against you one way and shall flee before you seven ways. I like that one. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he'll bless you in the land, the Eretz, the land tract, Israel, which the Lord your God gives you, the Lord which they're about to conquer, the generation Moses is talking to. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you will keep the commandments, if you obey the constitution of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So that's the flavor of the first 14 verses. That's pretty good. But the rest of the chapter, and it goes all the way to verse 68, you're looking at verses 15 through 68, talks about what's going to happen if they disobey. And we might say, what's going to happen when they disobey? And it's an increasing cycle of disasters leading to ultimately military invasion and deportation for the people of God. Let's just look at a little bit of that. Uh, look at verses 15. And following, but it shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God in the land to observe and do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses that he's about to list will come upon you and they'll overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Sound familiar? Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed, cursed will be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, irrational conclusions about things like justice and truth and reality, little things like that, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you've forsaken me. Uh, Let's not stop there. Look at verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king, this is the fifth cycle of discipline, it gets worse and worse, worse stair steps down into discipline. The Lord, if you disobey persistently over generations despite warnings to the prophets, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you shall set over you to a nation which neither you nor your uh, fathers have known, and there you shall serve other lowercase g gods, wood and stone. That's how this book ends. First and second kings is one book, that's the way the book ends. You've got Israel and Zedekiah 
uh, carted off to Babylon. Look at uh, verse 64, same chapter. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest. There should be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, filling of eyes, and despair of soul. Now go back to First Kings 2. If you had more time, we'd go to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, which says, If and when, sometime in the future, Israel, you find yourself in another country because of that fifth cycle of discipline, if you'll call out to me, I'll restore you. And that's what happens in the Old Testament. After a seven-year captivity in Babylon, a new generation comes back, rebuilds the temple, and they go from there. And there are other issues, of course. But look at verses 5 and 6 in 1 Kings chapter 2. David is interacting with his son Saul, uh, Solomon, the, the new king, just before he himself, David, dies. Now, you know what Joab did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, Saul's general who made peace with David, and Amasa, uh, uh, Absalom's general who made peace with David, and then Abner murdered both of them, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He, that is Joab, who has worked for David for decades as his leading general, Joab also shed the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist and his sandals on his feet, just saying he spilled a lot of innocent blood after I promised these people they were okay with me because they'd made peace with me. So David says to one king to the other king, they're handing the baton to one another, uh, so act according to your wisdom, but here's what I'm suggesting. Don't let Joab's uh, soul, his gray hair, go down to Sheol in peace. He's saying, if I were you, I would have him executed. Okay? Now that's that's pretty rough stuff, um, but I'm convinced the reason that David does this uh, is some people say it's because being around Joab made him feel guilty about all of his sins in that sim- similar area, David's. But David's dealt with those issues. I think uh, David is convinced that he cannot trust Joab not to try to kill Solomon and Bathsheba and take over the country. Uh, we saw him. Uh, helping Adonijah last week uh, as he was plotting to jump Solomon's claim. So he's saying he's a mortal threat, he's a cancer, and we're going to have to cut him out. Now, at that point, we're going to think, well, how about, let's say this, you know, uh, how, how can they say that? Isn't that murder? I would say it's not. I think it's a, it's a, it's a category mistake to equate the kings of Israel to somebody even as powerful as the United, President of the United States. It's apples and oranges. Uh, the King of Israel had the powers of the President of the United States, POTUS, plus the Congress and the Senate, plus the entire uh, federal judicial system, including the Supreme Court. They got it all. This is an absolute monarchy. They're supposed to function under God within the frame of the Constitution of the Law of Moses. And within that structure, they have the power of capital punishment. And David's saying... If I were you, I would do that like real quick because he's going to try to kill you and take over the government. So act according to your wisdom. He's not spelling it out in black and white, but it's very clear what he means. And don't let his, Joab's, hair go down to Sheol in peace. Now, of course, people are going to say, but that's wrong. I mean, it's just it can't be justified. I mean, thou shalt not kill. It's the sixth commandment, right? 
Well, yeah, that's what the King James has. The King James was translated in 1611 English, the greatest English translation of all time. But 400 plus years later, uh, we do know more in many ways Dead Sea Scrolls about the fine nuances of biblical Hebrew than they knew 400 years ago. And beyond that, we've known for 400 years that the Hebrew text doesn't say thou shalt not kill, which is generic. It says lo ratzach, which means murder, non-justifiable homicide. And it's interesting, Connie, in chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments of Exodus. In Exodus 21 through 24, talking about amplifications of the Ten Commandments, uh, those chapters commend self-defense against home invasion up to and including killing the person who's breaking into your house at night to rape your wife, just warfare and capital punishment. All those things are uh, affirmed as valid in Exodus 21, 22, 23, 24, immediately after chapter 20 says, thou shalt not murder, okay? Murder is not self-defense against home invaders who are going to kill your kids or rape your wife. Uh, murder is not just warfare, and murder is not capital punishment after due process of law. And due process of law for, for these folks is the king looking at it and deciding that person has committed a capital crime. They need to be executed. And they don't do 18 different uh, appeals and take 25 years to figure out we're going to kill this child molester who's killed 15 little girls. Uh, they can do it like this afternoon most of the time, and that tends to have an effect on people, at least gets their attention. So here's the thing. Um, you know, as I say, uh, man, I, I've got I've got a weapon at home. It's called the judge. It's a pistol that shoots a shotgun shell because I'm not a very good shot. So all i got to do is point in the general direction and pull the trigger, and the problem is solved, you know. So I'm just saying, no matter how badly I preach, and even if I don't like the meal you bring and give to the next potluck, if you want to come invade my home at night, I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later, you know, and then appeal to Exodus 21, you know. Uh, but, I, man, I hope I never have to do that. And uh, I didn't serve in the active military. I did one year of ROTC, Army, had no terrorist attacks that year, so you're welcome. And, uh, you know, you look at capital punishment. I'm not crazy about actually doing it. Even a lethal injection weirds me out. But they're necessary in a fallen world, and they're not pretty, but in this fallen world they're necessary to prevent much uglier things from happening. That's my story. I'm sticking to it, and it has the advantage of being the truth. Look at verse 7 and uh, following here. But, that's Joab, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, he was a guy who had helped David when David was getting away from Absalom, his son who rebelled against him. And let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So this isn't just David listing people to kill. He's thinking the last couple things before he dies of some people that definitely need to be executed and a few that need to be taken care of and helped. Uh, verse 8, Behold, there is with you... Shemai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite of Barum. Now it was he who cursed me and threw rocks, tried to stone David as David was fleeing out of his tactical withdrawal from Jerusalem, trying to get away from being assassinated by Absalom and his thugs. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day 
I went to Mahanaim, which is just uh, the east side of uh, the Mount of Olives. And then, of course, David went across the Jordan. But when he came down to me at the Jordan River, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I, David, I will not put you to death with a sword. He went over, David retreats, and this guy throws rocks at him and cusses at him. And one of the soldiers with David says, want me to cut the head of that dog off? And he said, no, let's just, let's just keep going. You know, he's an older guy. And then after they put the fire out and Absalom is put down and murdered by Joab, as David comes back, this guy, uh, Shammai, gets on his hands and knees and says, please forgive me. You know, I'm sorry I threw the rocks at you. I'm sorry I cursed at you. I'm sorry I said you weren't legit that my relative Saul really was the legit king and all that kind of stuff. And David said, you know, in effect, I won't kill you. I'm not going to uh, stick my foot on you and, and, and stomp on you. David promised he would not do it. He, David, would not do it. Now he's thinking, you know what? Uh, Sol- Solomon, you're great, but you're kind of wet behind the ears. And I think Joab will take you out. I think this guy is going to try to gin up a Saul cult and try to take you out. So I said I wouldn't do anything to him, but I think you should do something to him. And again, he's thinking about the legitimacy of this line, which is clearly God's line for David, Solomon, Messiah. So he's thinking about that. He's also thinking about just his son's health and well-being. Now, therefore, David says, don't let him go unpunished. I said I wouldn't do anything to him, but he's committed a capital crime under the law when he threw rocks at me and cursed me. Uh, for you are a wise man, and you'll know what you ought to do. But if I were you, I wouldn't let his hair go down. You know, I wouldn't let him die of old age. So he's kind of hinting at that. Now, I said David's stretching things a little bit when he's saying, well, technically, I said I wouldn't do anything, but you should do it. But he is a mortal threat in, in David's honest opinion. And so that's why he's you know, recommending uh, capital punishment here for him. And we'll see how that works out. It's not as cut and dried as Joab and some of these others. Uh, then David slept with his fathers. That's a euphemism for death and was buried in the city of David. As Ron will tell you, there is a place in Jerusalem where they'll show you for, what, $2 uh, David's uh, tomb, and it's not the legit place. It's, it's kind of a, a money-making thing for Palestinians, but it's a whole different thing. Uh, the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron when there was still a lot of debate whether he was the guy. In the last period, 33 years, he reigned in Jerusalem after he captured it. And Solomon sat on the throne of his, uh, David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So that's the, the, uh, the end of the end of David's reign. Now let's look at verses uh, 12 through 46, and we'll summarize these. Uh, and we'll look at the end of the beginning of King Solomon's reign. But look at that, Steve. You see that uh, PowerPoint slide? Uh, we just want the yellow part now. So let's make the, uh, you know what? Uh, let me say this. Uh, verse 1 through 12, Carol. See that? That's the first part. And verse 12 through 46. Now, I make a lot of topographical errors, but this isn't an error. Uh, that first passage ends with verse 12. The second passage starts with verse 12. That's a thing called chain link literary construction. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Where you can have one verse overlap and connect two larger passages where verse 12 ends that first unit but also kind of starts the second unit. But here's what I was going to say, Steve. You see that that the slide there, the white parts? We just we looked at that. Now we're going to look at uh, verses 12 through 46. So we don't really need the white part anymore. So let's make that go away. Then uh, 
can you can you do this? Do this. Zach, Zach, do this with your nose. All the youth group, do this. We're going to move that up on that slide. Okay, thank you. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't believe in that. I just uh, I can show you how you do that. So it's not difficult. Uh, yeah, let's look at verses 12 through 21. So now David's gone, and we've got Solomon going in earnest. Now Solomon sat on the throne of David's father. His kingdom was firmly established to an extent. It's going to be further established through these other things we're about to read about. Now Adonijah, he's the guy who tried to jump David's claim, tried to take the throne preemptively, and then when he got caught, and David uh, uh, anointed his son Solomon to be the legit king, Adonijah said, I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. Please don't kill me, even though I was treasonous and I deserve to be executed. Uh, and Solomon said, fine, just watch, watch your step and you'll be fine. Now, Adonijah, slow down, Brad. My brain goes 5,057 miles an hour when I get up here because I want to tell you so much in this. Just so little time, you know. But Adonijah, I can, I can say it. I can also say uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. But it takes me three tries, you know, so... And you're complaining about you don't have enough time, Brad. I know that. This is one of my problems. I, I, I can do that. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, one of David's several wives, came to Bathsheba, Solomon's uh, mom, the queen mother here, the mother of Solomon, and she and she said, "Do you come peacefully? Because last chapter you were a big problem, you know, kind of thing." And he said, "Peacefully." Now that's a lie, by the way. Are there lies in the Bible? Inerrantly recorded lies, right, Jan? Like that one. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine. N- no. Mm-mm. It's kind of like giving a team an extra play that violates the rule books, you know, that shouldn't have happened. And I mean, it's just, life's not fair, man, I'm telling you. Uh, you know the kingdom was mine. Not, not really. Not legitimately. And that all Israel expected me to be king. No, they didn't. You had 50 people and some VIPs. How the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers. I mean, just it's kind of the, the fish just jumped in the boat. You know, he's the king now. But it's from the Lord. He doesn't really believe that. He may not even believe in the Lord, but he doesn't really believe that. But he needs to say that here. Some people will tell you what they think you want to hear. Now I'm making one request. Just one request. Please don't refuse me. Give me a consolation prize. I can't be king, so let me have something else. She said, speak. Then he said, uh, please speak to Solomon the king, for he will not refuse you. If I ask him, he won't refuse me, but you won't. You're his mom. Uh, that he may give me a bishag. He was, she was the nurse that became part of the harem of David in his latter days, the Shunammite, as a wife. Bathsheba said, and she knows, that is nasty. That is tricky. Because once you marry a member of the harem of a previous king, you've got legal status to argue you ought to be the king yourself. So he's trying to get in the back door. This is plan B. Plan A was last chapter. It's plan B for him to take over. So Bathsheba, and, and by the way, some people think that she's very naive here and she's gone, well, let's just give him this one little thing. It won't matter. I don't think so. I think she's gone. I can't believe he's asking me this. There's no way we can do this. But she's just doing happy talk. Okay, sure. I'll like I'll talk to him. I had a student once that had big problems, and she wasn't doing the work, and this and that, and she wouldn't come to class. And she finally showed up at the office one day after missing like three weeks or four weeks beyond the total amount of absences she had. 
And she was supposed to turn in a speech outline, which is like one or two pages. She had this stack of papers, very untitled, put together, not connected. And I just happened to be walking in the in the CU Duncan uh, one afternoon, and my student was standing there, and I, I saw the student. I said, oh, we got trouble. And she got the stack of papers, and Susan Camp is the director who doesn't usually stand at the window. She's dealing with this. And she goes, and she always just calls me Brad, you know, Susan Camp. She goes, Oh, Dr. McCoy, this is for the student's benefit. Dr. McCoy, Dr. McCoy, and uh, the student's name was Lisa, but that's a FERPA violation, so let's say it was uh, Jill. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't Linda or Jill. She goes, Dr. McCoy, uh, Jill has something she wants to, an assignment she wants to turn in. Now, Susan can tell this isn't a legit assignment, you know. So I have a feeling, but Susan was doing, Susan was doing what Bathsheba did there. Dr. McCoy, Susan, has this, uh, oh great, I said Susan. Uh, but you don't know her last name, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, yeah, Susan has your assignment you want. Uh, here it is. Oh, I went, thank you very much. Okay, I just walked out the door. I was going to stay for a while, but I got in my car and left and it all worked out. But Bathsheba, I don't think it's this naive. She knows what this guy's doing. You go, sure, no problem. I'm going to see him today anyway. I'll ask him. Let me just see how smart Solomon is here. I think she's, She's going to be the backstop here. But uh, Bathsheba went to King Solomon, verse 19, to speak to him uh, for Adonijah concerning what he'd said. Uh, and the king rose to meet his mom, bowed down before her, uh, sat on his throne. Then he had a throne uh, for his mom. And she sat on his right, and she said, I'm making one small request for you. Dr. McCoy, Dr. McCoy, you know, uh, one little request here, Solomon. Please don't refuse me. And I think she's going through the process. Uh, tongue in cheek, and the king said to her, "Ask him, Mom, whatever you want. You know, you got it." And she said, "Let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah, your brother's wife." And I think she's saying, with a tone like, "Can you believe this jerk just asked me to ask you this? I mean, it's insane. We can't do that. There's no way." Now, watch this. Plan A for this guy was back in chapter one. I'm just going to grab what I want. I'm going to. Take the throne, kill Solomon, Bathsheba, and a lot of other good people, not murder, not uh, capital punishment, and take over. That gets stopped. Now he's, and, and he begged for forgiveness and said, I'll be nice from now on, but he's lying. He's just waiting, Blanche, for another good chance to, to do this. So this is chap- this is plan B. Uh, and again, this would put Solomon and uh, Bathsheba and all the righteous folks and the whole plan into question because now he's going to have uh, a reason to claim that he should have access to the throne. So I got something to ask you, and this is through Adonijah. He wants to take uh, 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 David's concubine, his nurse, as his wife. And King Solomon answered and said, you can see he hasn't gotten the wisdom he's going to get next chapter, but he's already wise enough to connect the dots. He says, why are you asking Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? If you're going to do that, ask for the whole kingdom. Just, just, Tell me to, to you know get out of the way and let him take over and, and kill both of us. For he's my older brother, even for him, uh, and for uh, Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Jehuiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, may, may God do so to me and more if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. And again, at the end of chapter 1, after he tried to jump Solomon's claim and set up a deal where he could kill Solomon. He comes back and says, please forgive me. Won't do it again. Never happen again. And now Solomon's saying, hey, we gave him a chance. 
He, he should have been executed the first time. He should have been executed at the end of chapter 1. He's done it now. He signed his own death warrant. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David, Solomon is not thinking selfishly here. He's thinking big picture. This is God's plan and will for me to be here and ultimately for the Messiah to get here. Uh, the throne of Father, uh, David, my father, and has made me a house as he promised. Surely Adonijah will be executed under just capital punishment today. No exceptions, no limitations, no delays. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, uh, who's his major military leader now, and he fell upon him, so he died. He executed him. This is capital punishment, and it's not pretty, but uh, we've got a two-time rebel in Adonijah who's not going to submit to God's will or Solomon's rule, and as king of Israel, he's got every right to do this, and it was the right, wise thing to do. Is it pretty? Of course not. But justice isn't pretty, but it's got to be understood in this context. And uh, when you take it out of its context, you will not be able to understand it, and you're going to reject justice. And uh, when you have a, a long series of events where a police officer ends up doing something uh violent to an offender and you only see that part of it and you don't see everything else that led to that, you cannot understand what's happening on on that. Trust me. So, trust me. If somebody else says that a lot, I'm going to try to avoid that. If you don't trust me at this point, 28 years into this thing, you never will. So, just so you'll know. Uh, (laughs) Verse 26. Uh, So, uh, Adonijah has been executed. Capital punishment. He deserved it, and Solomon had every right to do it. Then to Abiathar the priest, who had also been one of the co-conspirators last week with Adonijah, the king said, go to Anathoth, a city about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, to your own field, for you deserve to die. You deserve capital punishment too for conspiring against me. But I will not put you to death at this time. Now again, watch your P's and Q's. If you violate uh, kind of the terms of your parole here, you're going to be in trouble. Because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, because you were afflicted in everything which, which my father was afflicted. Uh, Abiathar had been uh, close to David. He wasn't ideal as a priest, but he wasn't all bad either. And Solomon said, hey, I'm not going to let you stay around here and influence people to uh, misinterpret what I'm doing and whatnot. I'm going to kind of banish you and your ministry out of town but uh, I'm not going to execute you. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest in Jerusalem, as chapter 4 is going to indicate he continues to be a priest, uh, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli. turns out Abiathar was a great-great-grandson of Eli. Remember Solomon and Eli? And there had been a promise in uh, 1 Samuel 2 because Eli's sons had messed up so badly that that line of priesthood would stop, and he's going to end it uh, in this exile. Now, the news about Adonijah, the guy who wanted to be king, his execution came to Joab. And what did David say about Joab? You really need to execute him. He is dangerous. He's a mortal threat to you in the kingdom, and uh, he should not go down to Sheol with his gray hair. He should not be allowed to die gracefully or old age. Now, the news came to Joab, for Joab had followed Adonijah, you know that from last week, 
although he had not followed Absalom, the other son who had rebelled. In fact, uh, Joab murdered Absalom. Uh, and Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. According to the Old Testament law, accidental killing, uh, you could find refuge there and get a more calm process of law to figure out what they were going to do with you. Uh, but this wasn't uh, a legitimate thing. We're not talking about accidental sins. We're talking about him being treasonous and some other things he did, specifically the murder of uh, Abner and Amasa. It was told King Solomon that Joab, who David has said deserved capital punishment, had fled to the tent of the Lord there in Jerusalem, and behold, he's beside the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, uh, and again, he's the leader who just inflicted capital punishment on uh, Adonijah. These word, these these names, you need a scoreboard to keep track of the names, don't you? Uh, the son of Jehoiada saying, go fall upon him. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord, trying to find Joab, which is where he is, uh, and said to him, Thus the king, King Solomon, has said, Come out. But Joab said, No, I'll die here. <laughs> you, you know, I deserve capital punishment. I know you're going to execute me. And Benaiah brought the king, went back to the king, word again saying, um, This is what Joab said. He's refusing to come out. And the king said to him, Do as he has spoken. He said, You know, I'm going to die today. Uh, and fall upon him and then bury him. Capital punishment. He's got to be executed that you may remove from me and from my father's house the blood which Joab shed without cause. The Lord will return his blood on his own head because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he. Think about Abner and Amasa who made peace with David, who was promised safe passage by David, and then Joab murdered them in cold blood. Uh, and it goes on from there, talking about those two situations. Uh, verse 33, So shall the blood return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants, but to David and his descendants and his house and his throne may be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up, fell upon him, Joab, put him to death. This is capital punishment as per the king's command. This is legit. It's not pretty, but it is just. And he was buried at his own house in the wilderness. The king appointed Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, formally as head of the joint chiefs of staff, and the king appointed Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Now, the king sent and called for Shimei. And you know what? Boom. Let's go there. Uh, Joab, who was just uh, executed, uh, was uh, excessively violent in war. He killed two people, uh, military leaders who had made peace with David, and he was part of the conspiracy to keep Solomon from the throne and kill Solomon in chapter 1. So uh, David recommended, as a because he's a mortal threat, for him to be executed, and that's what just happened right there. Okay, Verse 36, Now the king sent and called for Shammai and said to him, Shammai is the guy you know, that uh, David had said back in uh, verse 8, I told him I wouldn't hurt him, but if I were you, you better keep an eye on him, and you do what's wise, but I think he's going to try to start a Saul cult, a King Saul cult, and he's going to be a, potentially a very, very serious threat to you and your kingdom. So now the king's got to deal with him. And you might think we've had Adonijah and Joab executed. We're going to kill this guy next too, right? Hang in there with me just a couple more minutes. I'm almost done, okay? Uh, and we'll be fine. Uh, but look what Solomon does. He's not bloodthirsty. He's not looking to murder anything that moves. He's trying to do the right thing. He showed Adonijah that at the end of chapter 1. Now watch this. The king sent and called for Shammai and said to him, 
Build for yourself a house in Jerusalem, Shammai. I want you to stay in Jerusalem. I, want to, I don't trust you. I'm going to watch you. But if you stay in town, kind of under house arrest in the city of Jerusalem, you'll be fine. I'm not going to execute you. For it will happen, verse 37, that if you leave town, if you cross over the brook of Kidron, uh, you'll know that for certain you shall surely die. Capital punishment. Stay within the city limits and you're fine. I want to be able to monitor your activities and watch you like a hawk. Trust but verify. But if you go out of town, I can't trust you, and we're going to execute you. You're under that kind of capital crime kind of statute. Shemai then said to the king, the word is good. And and you know what? He's got a smile on his face and a song in his heart because he was just sure he was going to be the next one to get it. And he's given a new lease on life, literally. As my lord, the king has said, just stay inside of Jerusalem, so your servant will do. I mean, he had high-speed Internet connection. He could get all the news, watch all the sports, you know, the golf tournaments, everything. Get it all his email, no problem. So Shemai lived in Jerusalem for many days. And grace, this was like three years, actually. It came about at the end of three years. That's a pretty good long time. That two of the servants of Shemai ran away to Akesh, the son of Makkah, king of Gath. And they told Shemai, saying, Behold, other people, hey, your servants are in Gath. So Shemai arose, and he goes out of town, why is, he, why is that a problem? He can't do that. He can send somebody else to do it, but he's not supposed to do it. Uh, and he promised he wouldn't do it. Saddles up his donkey. He goes to Gath, to Akesh, to look for servants. And Shammai went and brought his servants from Gath. And it was told Solomon that Shammai had violated the terms of his parole, the terms of his clemency, and had gone from Jerusalem at Gath and had returned. So the king said, sent and called to Shammai and said, did I not make you swear by the Lord, by by uh, Yahweh? Anthony, there's that all caps uh, salvation name for God that's so unique. And solemnly warn you, saying, you will know for certain on the day you depart, go out of town, and go anywhere, you will die on that day, in the time frame you can understand. And I'll be just to do this. And you said to me, that's fine, word's good, I'll do it. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord? When you got the king and the Davidic dynasty telling you something, that is the word of the Lord within the framework of the law of Moses. You just got to obey those kind of things. It's like, uh, you know, once you jump off a building, you may change your mind, but it's too late. You're in trouble, you know. And here he went out of town and uh, uh, he did it knowingly and thinking it wouldn't matter, and it did matter. So the king also said to Shammai, you know all the evil which you acknowledge in your heart you did, throwing rocks at David, cursing him. That's a capital crime. David could have killed you himself. Therefore the Lord will turn your evil on your own head. But King Solomon will be blessed, and the throne of David will be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, he's the guy in charge of the execution squads, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and fell upon him, that is Shammai, and he died. Period. Last statement in this chapter, thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. You call that inclusio. That's a frame. When you start a section with a statement and end it with the same kind of statement, you're blocking it off as a unit. But in verse 12, we said the kingdom was established in Solomon's hands. Now it's even further established because we've eliminated three mortal threats. Joab's no longer a problem. Adonijah is no longer a problem. Shemai is no longer a problem. And the statute and, and the uh, president has been set. You cross Solomon, 
he's going to be just as severe as David would have been. You know, you can't play games with the, with the uh, rule of God or the ruler given by God. Let me finish this way. Human justice isn't pretty. It can't be and it shouldn't be pretty. Instead of being properly understood, it's got to be seen in context. Uh, again, that's not that graphic of a picture. We've all seen burning buildings, but we know what happens. Those buildings collapse, 3,000 people die. And as I said, if you, if you see the pictures of people jumping out, it's, it's sickening. It's horrifying. And I don't care whether you preferred President Bush's strategy and tactics or President Obama's strategy and tactics to the extent that our military has killed people and broken things, uh, that's a just reaction to those who either would do something like this or very much in favor of doing even worse things. And it's easy to look at a drone attack that takes a whole tent out and say, man, we shouldn't do that. But justice isn't pretty, and to be understood, it's got to be understood in its context. While not everything in this chapter, including the three capital punishment incidents, uh, are pretty. In fact, I'd say they're pretty ugly. Uh, they're legitimate in their context. And if you don't pursue justice, you're going to have much uglier things happen to you and to your culture. And I kind of shudder for my culture when I see uh, the way we react to justice and react to just rule of law and to authority figures. It's not good. Moving from man's justice as embodied by Solomon's decisions here to God's justice. This is really, really important. Give me three more minutes, I'll be done. God's justice isn't pretty, but it's always preceded by God's grace. And, you know, you think about, oh my goodness, you know, uh, he that believeth in the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I don't like that. No. Well, it's not your plan, number one. He's not going to insult you about the plan. But God's not angry without a cause, you know. Uh, he makes the gospel available to those who will respond as he woos us by his grace. And I think exhibit A of the fact that God's justice always comes before, or God's grace always becomes before his justice, I should say, is the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose again. The gospel is the good news that because Christ died for Olga's sins and Katie's sins and Ron's sins and Wanda's sins, and much more importantly, for Brad's sins, because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. The cross is not pretty. We talk about the cross so much, we almost sanitize it. That's, I, I look at that when, a lot of times when we're singing, just to kind of get me focused on Christ when we're, I'm standing over there singing during worship time. But we've kind of sanitized the cross. It was an ugly, horrific thing. The thing that amazed me about the uh, Passion of the Christ movie was the way everybody was so offended by how violent it was. I mean, what do you expect? I mean, and this is just seeing what they did to him before the crucifixion was horrible, much less going to the crucifixion and on the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, beyond what the Romans did to Jesus, which is horrible, but they did that to a lot of people. God the Father judged him as your substitute. That's That's where the payment is made. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, because Christ died to pay for our sin as our substitute, we don't have to die in our sin. And if you die in your sin, it's because you've not responded to the overtures of God's grace. 
Now, Christ did die for our sins, but as James sings so well, he's not dead anymore. There's the empty tomb. And the resurrection validates the saving power of the redemptive death of Christ. Uh, you can go to places in Thailand and go to pagodas where they've got parts of the Buddha's collarbone. I've been, I've been there. I was there on Easter Sunday several years ago at a place they told us. They're very proud. The Buddha's collarbone, part of it's right over there. And I thought, uh, it's funny because we have an empty tomb. We've got a resurrected Savior, not just a, a guy who gives us a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts. So, uh, you know, when you, when you look at justice then or now, you got to put it in this context. And uh, when you wonder about the inequities of the world, uh, before you get feeling too sorry for yourself, which is easy to do because we all face this kind of stuff, think about Christ willingly. And he, this isn't, do you realize that some of the people that are really considered to be cool evangelical preachers today, and they, they don't wear a suit and they have their shirt tail out, will tell you that believing that Christ died as your substitute is cosmic child abuse. They're denying the essence of the faith because it's not cool to say Jesus died for your sins. It's cool to say he was a virtuous martyr, you know. Uh, oh my goodness. It's blasphemy. It's terrible, but it draws a crowd. It's terrific. Uh, uh, yeah, so before you feel too sorry for yourself about the inequities of the world, think about the Lord Jesus willingly accepting that role, taking the role of the sin, sendee, the father's the sender, and facing that cross, and read about Gethsemane and the emotional anguish who for the, uh, uh, keeping our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, all the pressure of faith, who for the uh, uh, joy uh, before him endured, endured the cross, despising the shame. Uh, think about that for a while, and that will help. And then I will, I'm going to end now. Uh, that's the big stuff. But a, an overarching principle that will make you a much better Bible reader is reading any text about capital punishment here or anywhere in Scripture, detached from the context, will lead you to being conned by the text. Reading any text apart from its context is a pretext for error and confusion. That's why most of the time up here we're going through whole sections of the Bible. We're not just... In Life of Solomon one week, Noah's Ark the next week, Feeding of 5,000 the next week. No context, just related stories, you know, non, non-connected story. Typically we go through books of the Bible to sections, so you've got a context, you can see how everything fits together. But you're going to have to concentrate, okay? So I wouldn't eat, a, don't eat five donuts during the break. Maybe just one, because more than five will make it hard for you to concentrate, uh, at the level you need to, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for giving this passage to us on this 15th anniversary of September 11th. And I do pray that if anyone here this morning has not, from the depth of their heart, responded to your grace of conviction of sin and of need and rested in Jesus Christ, that you might open their heart to see and believe. But for most of us, frankly, Father, we're too sentimental you know, we, we recoil from real justice because it often is hard to look at and it's ugly in its, in its, uh, minute reality. But when we put it in context, we realize that your justice actually reduces and eliminates much uglier things. So help us to see that and realize as horrific as the violence of the cross was, like on that movie and we looked at it so intently, that's really the ultimate act of love. 
It transforms. Your, your plan is so great, you can transform and morph a cross, a Roman cross, into kind of the ultimate act of love and good. So, Father, we recalibrate our categories as we think about justice and truth and love and goodness, especially for the, the uh, high school kids, middle school kids, college kids. They need to have your uh, categories and your convictions. And so I pray your Holy Spirit will do that to us and for us, to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.